Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Contrition, Confession, and Candor for the fifth week in Lent and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April the 2nd, 2006. Confounding expectations of normal human behavior, one of the most eloquent expressions of human contrition comes from the most powerful statesman in Israel's history. An editorial gloss to the music director tells us that Psalm 51 is a song written by King David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Interestingly, the editor does not mention that David also sent Bathsheba's husband Uriah to the front lines of battle to ensure that he would be slaughtered and that Bathsheba would become his. This story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Hear David's poem of penitence in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 12. Given that most ancient peoples divinized their kings and certainly sanitized their faults, and that the Hebrews included rather than whitewash this episode from their sacred history, David's public confession is shocking in its candor. Perhaps it was David's candor that led Christians to honor him almost a millennium later, where we read in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, that David was, quote, a man after God's own heart, end quote. David appeals to God's unfailing love and immense compassion for forgiveness of his sins. His language suggests a fixation of sorts on his multiple failures. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. He admits that he has not only wronged his neighbor and befouled himself, 
but even more importantly, that he has dishonored God. David prays for release from his sinful actions, note the plural, including cleansing, renewed joy, and a steadfast spirit to sustain him amidst the deep discouragement that people can feel when confronted with moral failure. In her many works, Joan Chittister, a Benedictine nun and author of some 25 books, returns time and again to this theme of personal failure and struggle. One problem, she suggests, is to foolishly accept perfection as our standard or goal. When we imagine that we will never fail, failure hits the hardest. Perfection, Chittister notes, is, is an oppressive standard, and no Christian this side of heaven will ever reach it. Quote, the problem, of course, is that we fail. We know ourselves to be weak. We stumble along being less than we can be, never living up to our own standards, let alone anyone else's standards. We eat too much between meals. We work too little to get ahead. We drink more than we should at the office party. We're all addicted to something. Those addictions not only cripple us, they convince us that we are worthless and incapable of being worthwhile. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy of the worst order because it traps us inside our own sense of inadequacy, of futility, and of failure." End quote. David's adultery and his de facto murder were regrettable enough and certainly sad but in a sense, they are unremarkable. Such perfections, as Chittister intimates, are our common lot. In fact, in his penitential poem, David hints at a deeper malady. Not only does he ask for forgiveness of sinful actions, note the plural, he laments his sinful disposition, note the singular. Surely I've been a sin sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. While David's sinful actions might be thought of as acute or episodic choices of free will, his inclination to sin results from a chronic and congenital condition. His problem to draw upon a medical model is that his sinful inclinations are inherited rather than acquired. This led St. Augustine to his famous diagnosis that when left to themselves, human beings are not able not to sin. Non posse, non peccare. Everything we know about human experience confirms St. Augustine's diagnosis. Knowing that moral failures have their root in an inherited disposition, rather than the other way around, as we often and wrongly believe. This can be unsettling. As the Trappist monk Thomas Merton observed, the basic and most fundamental problem of the sinful life is this acceptance of our hidden and dark self with which we tend to identify all the evil that is in us. The perennial temptation at this point given the insecurities provoked by admission of failure, is to deny, 
rationalize, or engage in a personal makeover. This is natural and an understandable impulse, but it gets us nowhere. Every person, of course, longs to be loved and accepted for just who they are and where they are. But as Frederick Buechner observes, quote, that is often just what we also fear more than anything else. Little by little, we come to accept instead the highly edited version of ourselves, which we put forth in the hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing, end quotes. True saints are those who realize, like David, just how inherently sinful they can be in both action and in disposition and who do not try to pretend otherwise, or put on appearances to mask reality, either to themselves or to others. In addition to honesty and candor about our fallen condition, David points us to another lifelong virtue, the spirit of contrition. We read in Psalm 51 verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Contrition does not require self-hatred or wallowing in failure. David does neither of these. Instead, we seek that place where we view failure as what Chittister calls among the best friends of the soul. Rather than chasing unattainable perfection, says Chittister, we should appropriate what she calls the sanctifying, the sanctifying grace of mistakes. It is a humbling but ultimately liberating notion to believe with St. Augustine that God, even from my sins, has drawn good. The season of Lent reminds us of the seriousness of the sinful actions we commit and the sinful disposition we inherited that gives rise to those failures. Lent beckons us to candor and contrition along with confession. But losing hope is more serious still. Should we fall, writes St. Peter of Damascus in the 12th century, we should not despair and so estrange ourselves from the Lord's love. Let us always be ready to make a new start. If you fall, rise up. If you fall again, rise up again." End quote. We can get up again, Frederick Buechner suggests, because Christians are, quote, people who have been delivered just enough to know that there's more where that came from, and whose experience of that little deliverance that has already happened inside themselves and whose faith in deliverance still to happen is what sees them through the night. And now for further reflection. First of all, consider the distinction that David makes in Psalm 51 between sinful actions and a sinful disposition. Number two, contemplate St. Augustine's famous diagnosis that when left to themselves, human beings are not able not to sin.
Third, what do you think that Thomas Merton meant when he said that the basic and most fundamental problem of the spiritual life is to accept our hidden and dark self? Fourth, why do you think it is that we try to present to other people what Beekner calls a highly edited version of ourselves in the hopes that people will find it more acceptable than the real me. And finally, meditate upon Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. For books this week, I review a book called A Spiritual Field Guide, Meditations for the Outdoors, by Bernard Brady and Mark Noisil, Grand Rapids, Brazos Press, 2005, 192 pages. I don't think they use the word, but what Brady and Noisil offer in their little book is an anthology of readings about creation and nature. Perhaps they use the word meditation instead of anthology because all the readings are short, almost never longer than one page, and sometimes much less. In, in the introduction, then, they suggest that one read these many short texts in a deliberate, reflective fashion, rather than plowing straight through from beginning to end. In this introduction, they even offer seven different reading plans for a week-long retreat, a weekend retreat, or single-day trips. Many of the readings which they include come directly from Scripture, but many others come from a broad array of Christian writers as diverse as Wendell Berry and Annie Dillard to Martin Luther and Mother Teresa, while still others come from non-Christian traditions like Thoreau, John Muir, Chief Black Elk, and Chong Zhu. They organized the readings into five thematic chapters. First, on creation in the Creator. Second, the human place in creation. Third, the notion of a special spot, quote-unquote, or what is sometimes called thin places or times when God speaks to us in special ways. Fourth, journey in the wilderness. And fifth, the broad purview of all of God's creatures and not merely human beings. The authors give little to no attention to the problem of evil in creation, such as natural evil, which in some ways is more troublesome than the moral evil that one can contribute to human free will. Tennyson described this natural evil in his famous phrase, quote, nature red in tooth and claw, end quote nor do they consider the bleaker implications of a materialist view of nature found in a person like Rick Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett. But perhaps that's the way it should be for believers who confess with the first few lines of Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth and seven times declared his creation good. These readings direct us to the importance of human dependence interdependence, gratitude, responsibility, hope, and purpose.
All these, of course, are appropriate to those who confess with St. Paul that God is clearly seen in his creation when viewed through the eyes of faith. Bernard Brady and Mark Neutzel, A Spiritual Field Guide, Meditations for the Outdoors. For film this week, I consider the film Bubble from the year 2005. Director Steven Soderbergh is barely over 40 years old, yet with films like Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Ocean's Eleven, Traffic, and Aaron Brockovich to his credit, anything he does is worth a look. In this innovative film, Bubble, he moves from directing megastars like George Clooney and Julia Roberts to using non-professional local people as actors, if you can call them that, who participated in the script to tell a simple, powerful story. The film Bubble was set in their homes and made for a measly $1.6 million. In real life, for example, Debbie Doberiner worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken for 24 years. In the film, she stars as Martha, an overweight woman with orange hair whose life consists of working in a doll factory in Parkersburg, West Virginia. She takes care of her invalid father. Her younger co-worker, Kyle, does not own a car. He lives in a mobile home with his mother. And so she taxis him every day and generally mothers him. Later, these two are joined in the doll factory by a young woman named Rose. In real life, a woman named Misty Dawn Hawkins, who is a hairdresser. Rose plays a single mom who, like Kyle, did not finish high school and works two jobs struggling to get ahead. The night that Martha babysits Rose's daughter so she and Kyle can go on a date ends in tragedy. These extremely ordinary people are trapped in the banalities of life as gray as the Ohio Valley landscape, living on the bubble, if we can put it that way, that in their case bursts. Bubble also makes history as the first film released simultaneously in theaters on pay-per-view cable television and also on DVD. I love this deeply human film by the talented director Steven Soderbergh. Bubble from the year 2005. And finally, for this fifth week in Lent, I offer a Lenten prayer from Father Thomas Hopko's book, The Lenten Spring. It's just five lines, but I hope you enjoy it. The Lenten spring shines forth the flower of repentance. Let us cleanse ourselves from all evil, crying out to the giver of light. Glory to you, O lover of man. Lenten Prayers by Father Thomas Hopko. Thank you for joining us for Journey with Jesus for Sunday, April 2nd, 2006. And please join us every Monday for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.